for uh, for many years, I was a news junkie. I worked in radio news, worked on the Hill, and and watched news, fascinated with news. That went back to when I was a kid and chasing fire engines and all that kind of stuff, watching political conventions, um, which is why it's felt odd over the last few years to sort of disengage more and more from, from watching the news. Uh, I try to watch enough to stay informed, but I, I, I found, like many of you, that it often becomes more exasperating that watching the local news or watching the, the national news, tr scrolling through reporters on Twitter just tends to be more discouraging than helpful. The world has been a broken place since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit in the garden, but technology and smartphones have brought more of that brokenness in front of our eyes, and we are not omniscient like God, and so it's sometimes difficult for us to process as much as we see and as much of the evil that comes before us. I, I would love to tell you that I I, whenever I see that, it causes me to respond in prayer and, and right attitudes, but more often than not, it ends up being frustrating and angering, and that's not a good thing. I say that because the, the section of Scripture that we're entering into, the next 11 chapters in the book of Isaiah, chapters 13 through 23, will feel a little like watching a newscast from centuries ago. And what I mean by that is, these chapters sort of cycle through a number of nations that God is speaking to, and it follows the same pattern that we've seen already in Isaiah in dealing with the nation of Judah. Confrontation of sin, showing what, what man's evil and man's arrogance look like and how that's played out, and then bringing about God's judgment as a consequence of that. This is, um, as I said on, on, on the first week, there is a Hebraic poetic kind of style to Isaiah's prophecy so that it, it sort of works in cycles. And so these sections 13 through 23 is a judgment of the nations, and it, it just sort of moves cycle after cycle, announcing sin and then judgment, and then ultimately giving hope before it's over. We've, we've seen this cycle through the first 12 chapters, primarily in dealing with Judah, uh, God's people, the, the, the Jewish people, and confronting their sin in terms of being a people who had firsthand experience with the grace and blessing of God, all of his provision, his bringing them out of Egypt and into the promised land and protecting them there and giving them a land that, that provided blessing to them and yet them turning against him and, and turning to idols and, and beginning to behave like the nations around them and beginning to embrace those other nations and, and their sin. And, and so we've seen already this pattern of confrontation. The result that we've, we've talked about already is that this nation that is called to be a light to the other nations ends up walking through these same sinful patterns. They become a nation that embraces godless leadership and injustice and idolatry. And so Isaiah 13 through 23 is really looking outward from Judah. It's looking to these Gentile nations who are even more godless in their approach to life and work and worship and politics and morality, all of that. This morning, we're going to survey chapters 13 through 18, and then next week, chapters 19 through 23. You will find as you go through this, and, and I would encourage you, I'm going to pick out different points along the way and, and, and hope to, to, to show you themes throughout these chapters. I would encourage you to read these, but you will find as you do that there are just repeated disheartening similarities to man's evil today, that it's a picture of the, the, the fallen nature of man. But I would say to you, there's also comfort here. If you want to turn or scroll to Isaiah chapter 13, I, we are going to see man's 
sinful arrogance, but also I, I want to remind you this morning in this passage is that there are three truths that are as timeless today as they were 3,000 years ago. God's justice is right. God's compassion is great, and God's rule is steady. And as a consequence of that, our, our, our application of that for us will be to honor God's justice, to try to understand how God is, is showing compassion and that we would be grieved and, and would have compassion, but also that we would rest in his rule. If you've read through this passage, one of the first things you should notice, it starts in chapter 13, verse 1, is this recurring phrase, the oracle concerning, 13.1 is the oracle concerning Babylon, end of chapter 14, it's the oracle concerning Philistia, chapter 15, an oracle concerning Moab, and so on. An oracle is a prophetic word from God. It is saying this is, this is what is to come, and it is something that God has given through the prophet Isaiah, and in this case for Gentile people groups. And he goes through a list of these nations identified here by names like Babylon and Assyria and Damascus and Moab and Philistia and down to Cush. If you take a look, you've got a map in, in either your notes or you can see it up on the screen here. I've tried to highlight in red. And I want you to just see it on a map because it, it, it helps, I think, to see the broad sweep of this. This isn't just Judah's neighbors, Moab and Philistia are to the, the east and to the west. But, but the cities of Babylon and Damascus, the region of Assyria, um, the region down to, to Cush, which is down in, in what would be Africa to us, um, the, the point in, in seeing this and the point in what Isaiah is doing here for us is to show us this broad sweep of nations and to bring us to the place of understanding and making the case that wherever you look in the known world, there is godlessness. Wherever you look, there is this man-centered oppression of the weak, there is violence and injustice, and there is a turning from the one true creator. Uh, in a way, what this passage helps us see is just reminiscent of what starts back in Genesis 6 when the Lord looks upon the world and sees wickedness across the face of the earth. Um, I, I'm not going to read all the details of each one's sin. Like I said to you, I, I, I think this is sort of cyclical, that there is oppression and pride and godlessness and violence in each one, and it sort of works its way through these cycles. Um, but I do want to start in particular where Isaiah starts, which, which is with Babylon in chapters 13 and 14, because there's something unique in his treatment of Babylon. At the time Isaiah writes this, it's roughly 730, 725 B.C., Babylon is not an empire. It is a city, an important city. You see it marked there on the map. It's along the Euphrates River. It's kind of a cultural center, sort of a spiritual center for worship in Mesopotamia that people would go to, they would go to visit. Um, Modern-day Iraq, probably about 50, 60 miles south of Baghdad. Um, if you could sort of imagine sort of the cosmopolitan nature of a New York City, that's kind of what, what Babylon was at, at that point in time. But the important thing is it was also just a city. The Assyrian Empire still ruled, and Babylon was subject to Assyria just as every other ancient Near East city was, or virtually all of them at that point. And so this oracle against Babylon is being given in the 8th century BC, and it is clear evidence of divine prophecy. When we say an oracle, we're saying God is, God is speaking forth things that man does not see or know yet, and he is speaking forth what will happen, and it will be another century from this time 
before the Babylon army is, is raised up and joins with the Medes and overthrows the Assyrian rule. Babylon then moves to the center of the world stage and defeats the Assyrians and captures Nineveh. So that's more than a century away. And then at that point, Babylon rises to great power. And we begin to speak of the Babylonian Empire. And that's the one that ultimately will, will get down to Jerusalem and will come into the city and will capture the Jewish people and will begin to take them into captivity. We'll begin to take them into exile in 597 BC. That's a century and a quarter away. And yet we're alerted in Isaiah that Isaiah is made known this by God. Because if you go to chapter, I'll read the verse, Isaiah 39, 6, Isaiah is speaking to King Hezekiah and he says, behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. At, at that point in time, 730-ish BC, it's hard to fathom that all of our stuff's going to be carried away to Babylon because it's the Assyrians who are the threat. But indeed, God is already telling them that this is what is to come. Babylon will rise to great power and great arrogance. Daniel 4.30 is that boasting of King Nebuchadnezzar. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And if you remember the account, he is instantly struck with madness and spends a season acting like a wild animal before he is brought back to his senses. That was really the, the beginning of the end for the Babylonian Empire. Nebuchadnezzar did what so many kings did then, and, and governments still do today, which is to heavily tax the citizenry. Uh, the, the taxes were levied as a way of maintaining the kingdom, maintaining the residence, maintaining the army, all of the things that, that were needed to be done. And so there was unrest as a result of that. His son eventually takes the throne and only lasts two years. And then in 539, it's the Persians, again with help from the Medes, who overthrow the Babylonians. And so we see God at work in continuing to move through these nations. But I want to just pause for a moment because he's, he's addressing Babylon's arrogance, Babylon's sort of mentality in its heyday, if you will, when it is this oppressive regime with relentless persecution. And if you look in chapter 14, Isaiah 14, I just want to read verses 12 through 14 because this is a passage that's discussed a great deal as well. Um, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. For centuries, this passage has been discussed by commentators in connection with Satan and whether or not this is also a description of Satan's fall, Satan having been an angel uh, who rebels against God and who is cast down to the earth. And, and there's the possibility that it's that. I would also say that at the time this is given in 730, that's not necessarily the first line of thinking. There were lots of Canaanite beliefs of lesser gods trying to, to, to move themselves up to become greater gods and being thrown down in the process. And so this is using also some familiar language. It, it could have an application to Satan, but I would say to you in the context, what is absolutely clear here is this is a description of the boastful arrogance that Babylon possesses. The idea that we are the greatest and there is none like us and we can ascend to whatever height we pursue. And that's what chapters 13 and 14 are, are, are dealing with. 
And that is this, that, that Babylon is more than just a, a, a geographic location. It's more in the Bible, it's more than just a city or an empire. It is that, and it is specifically that in some places. But it's also in Scripture, Babylon is used to describe sort of a spirit and attitude of humanistic sort of achievement, that it's all about man, and man can be like God. And, and we can take this all the way back, if you think your biblical history, back to Genesis chapter 11, when the, the plain of Shinar, which is where Babylon is, becomes a great spot in which people migrate to. It's a fertile land, and, and great numbers begin to move there. And Genesis chapter 11, verse 4 says, they said to each other, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Sound familiar, that story, right? The Tower of Babel. This is man's attempt at, at exalting his own greatness. We will establish a city and a tower that is as high as the heavens, and we will make a name for ourselves. We are the great ones. And of course, we know God stopped that by confusing what was then one language into multiple languages, and the, the work ends. And that is, that is the biblical roots of this spirit of Babylon. That is, when Scripture uses this term, it's also often referring to this sort of, we can do this, we don't need God, we're great, we're strong. And so when he says in Isaiah 14, what we've already read, verses 13 and 14, you, in your heart you're saying, I'll ascend to heaven, I'll be above the stars of God, my throne's on high, Mount of ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. It should bring us right back to the initial fall of man, when in the garden, Satan says to Eve, you know, this fruit looks really good, and if you eat of it, and you will have this understanding of good and evil, and it will make you be able to be like who? God. The day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, and this becomes man's craving, man's ambition. And so this word Babylon not only points to the geographic place, but it is symbolic throughout the scriptures of that sort of premise, that attitude that says, we don't need God. We're great and we'll be even greater. And so that's why Peter, Peter's speaking about the city of Rome in his day, and he uses Babylon to refer to Rome because you've got the Roman Empire and the Caesar encouraging worship of himself and believing that it's all about the Roman Empire. That's why that's referred to as Babylon. And in the book of Revelation, when it's speaking of the fall of Babylon, it's talking about God pouring out his judgment on the arrogance of man's wickedness, man's pride, and man's sin. So here in Isaiah 13 and 14, this is also the case. There's the picture of the city, the empire that's led by Nebuchadnezzar that would undergo God's judgment. As we've already said, the Persians would ultimately lead the defeat of Babylon. And it says in Isaiah 13, 20, that the land will be desolate. And sure enough, if you go a, just a, a, about a century or two after the time of Jesus Christ, that once great city is leveled to rubble by that point. It's been decimated over the years by battles over its property. And so it becomes a land for us today, for archaeologists to mine through. But it actually occurs, just as Isaiah says, will happen to that city. It will no longer be inhabited. But the second reality is also, this is a statement of God's justice, a great display of his justice against the spirit of Babylon, against man's man-centeredness, humanistic sort of thinking that pervades every age, not just 3,000 years ago. That's why Isaiah 13 
if you want to scroll back to Isaiah 13, speaks then of this day of the Lord coming. This is more than just his judgment on Babylon. Isaiah 13, verse 9. Let me read down through from Isaiah 13, 9, down through verse 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts the day of his fierce anger. There's a picture there of the land and Babylon and the desolation, but there's a much broader picture when he says, I will punish the world for its evil, and when I do, I will put an end to pomp and arrogance and, and lay low the pompous pride of man. This passage can also be concerning, troubling when we first read it, when it speaks of, behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger. You say, Cruel, is that the, the right word? It means to be without mercy. And we want to say at this point, but God is merciful. How, how can this be? But we don't pit God's mercy against God's justice. And so it's not mercy, it's not justice at the expense of mercy. God is both. He is merciful, but he is also just. And his mercy does not ignore his justice. And there are times, the Bible tells us, when God's justice is in his remove of restraint over man's evil. Where essentially God says to man, if this is what you want, if this is what your passions desire, if this is the evil you want to commit, I will no longer hold you back from that, but will let you reap that whirlwind and all of the consequences that come with it. That should ring familiar from Romans chapter 1, where he speaks of the fact that God is evident in creation. His existence is clear from the order in creation, and yet man suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. He says, no, nah, there's no God. And he goes on as if there's not. And the judgment at the end of Romans 1 is God giving man over to the lusts of his own hearts to do as he pleases. What we're seeing in Isaiah 13, all the way through 23, I would submit to you, when he's describing these evil, warring nations and they are carrying out terrible violence against one another and cruelty toward one another, is what happens when God, in his judgment on man's evil, pulls back the restraint over man's wickedness. And man is, is destroying one another, and armies are destroying innocent people, and that is part of God's judgment on evil. One commentator put it this way, he says, these are, these are human beings being themselves to the full. They're doing what their own hearts desire, which is to kill and to take and to possess and overpower. These are human beings being themselves to the full with their natural acts fulfilling God's supernatural purposes. You see that? There's the sovereignty of God in terms of the execution of God's justice on man, but it's being done by the simple means of removing the restraint on man's wickedness, and allowing men to devour one another. And so the violence in these chapters is really a picture of fallen human nature without any action by God to then restrain at that point, until he does, until he puts a stop to it. God is 
merciful to sinners, to urge them to repent, to call them to turn from their wickedness and to obey him. But to those who persist in sin, who do not trust in him, who are determined to do what they want to do without God, his justice demands punishment. And so throughout these chapters, we are seeing God's fierce anger against Assyria and Babylon and Damascus and all the way down to Cush because they have ultimately turned against God. And, and this, is, this is a demonstration in these chapters that all of these nations ultimately answer to Yahweh. These nations, 3,000 years ago, represent all of humanity throughout all of time, and that is all are accountable to the Creator. All ultimately are answerable to God. And man will continue in his chaos short of the grace of God rescuing him from that. If you scroll over to chapter 17 or turn over to chapter 17 for just a moment, because I just want you to see a couple verses here that I think help picture this for us, sort of the heart of man and then the work of God. Isaiah 17, this is sort of the tail end of his oracle against Damascus, and Isaiah 17, verse 12. Ah, the thunder of many peoples. They thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of the nations. They, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountains before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. The picture here that he's using is one that probably all of you can relate to if you've ever stood on the shore on a really windy day when the, the waves have been crashing in. And the waves are tall, and they are relentless, and they keep coming, and it's noisy, right? You just hear this constant roar of the ocean coming in. And that's what he's, what he's picturing here is this churning with power, persistence, pushing forward. This is what man thinks of man. This is man's, man's self-identity as being this, this, this heavy wind and these churning waves who are just billowing forth in great power. And he's saying, this is, this is how man is looking at this, one wave crashing after another. This is how the nations at least appear, strong and relentless and, and loud and unstoppable. They keep coming. This is why, if you think back again, a number of chapters back, when Isaiah first goes to King Ahaz and, and tells him, trust in the Lord, Ahaz, we know from earlier in Scripture, says, I... I don't want this quiet little brook that you're trying to sell me, Isaiah. I don't want to just sit by this brook and trust God. I want a mighty river to come through and defend us. I want something really strong that will push back the people of Israel and the people of Syria who are coming at me. And so that's why I'm giving my money to the Assyrian Empire, because they are like a mighty river, and they'll devastate our enemies. Well, here's, the, here's the picture that, that Isaiah uses again that shows that this is what the nations think they are. But then he says, but God, God is powerful. And God's justice will prevail. Because as much as the nations roar and keep coming, it says he will rebuke them and they will flee far away. God will stop them. 
When God determines that in his time it is time to stop them, he will stop and they will become like bits of chaff, the, the, the little shells from the grain when it's harvested that blow around and don't make any noise anymore. They don't control their own destiny. They go wherever the wind is, like swirling dust is the picture that he gives there. They're just little particles of stuff being blown around by the very justice of God that they had shaken their fist at. And, and he's just helping us to see here again the nations are accountable to God. He is the one who is sovereign. But there's something else here that I, I just think is crucial in terms of our application of all this. When God does this, when God pours out his wrath, as, as, as much as it's powerful and sometimes even hard for us to read through some of this, when his justice is accomplished, the remnant looks on him and praises him for his justice and honors him. Back in Isaiah chapter 14, back in that section about Babylon, preceding the one that we read, in verses 4 through 8 of Isaiah 14, and I won't read it all, but it's talking about when the Lord does what, what we've just read, when the Lord stops what's going on, when he, when he judges man, when his justice is, is clear and it breaks the staff of the wicked. Verse 7 describes the whole earth is at rest and quiet, they break forth into singing. It is a picture of, of God's people at this point in history seeing God's justice, and they are at first standing in silent awe of what God is doing, and then they break into rejoicing at the justice of God. They are, they are honoring God for being a just and true God. Psalm 137 is a psalm written about the, the Jews being in exile in Babylon. And you're probably familiar with it. They're grieving by the river in Babylon, and they are grieving for, for, for being taken out of Judah and Jerusalem into Babylon. Verse 8, it says, that these are these exiles, and they say, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed will be the Lord for his justice. Blessed will be the Lord who will confront your evil and who ultimately will stop you. Proverbs 21.15 says, When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. God's justice should cause us to praise him all the more. We often praise him for his grace and his mercy and his love and his kindness, but his justice is right and true and praiseworthy. Revelation 16, as God is pouring out his wrath on man's evil, an angel says of the Lord, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. A few verses later, those witnessing God's justice in Revelation 16 say, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. God's justice is perfect and right, deserving of our honor. The, the, the violence in number of these passages is, is difficult to read. But what it is helping us to see is the contrast between the perfection of God's holy goodness and the depravity of evil man, and it is reminding us that God will ultimately judge that. And when his judgment falls, we don't rejoice in the suffering of those judged. We rejoice because our God is just. We rejoice in that moment because God is true 
and right, and he has done what he has said he will do, and he has kept his word and his covenant promises, and he is judging wickedness as he has promised. The rise and fall of the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the, the era under Alexander the Great, the Roman Empire, one after another, history echoes the fact that all of those nations ultimately demonstrated no trust in God, carried on in, in evil against others, all led by ambitious men with powerful cravings that ultimately ran headlong into the justice of God. Ultimately, it is God, as he says in chapter 17, when he rebukes them, they will flee far away. They will become as little bits of dust Nobody at, at this point in history or over the next thousand years when each of those empires was ruling would have ever said, oh, Caesar, Alexander the Great, they're just going to become little bits of dust being pushed around the atmosphere. God has already said that because he is just. And so whether it's the Old Testament nations of the ancient Near East or nations today, there is a reckoning that man will stand before God and evil nations will be accounted to God's justice and we should honor that justice. But secondly, balance this. There's compassion as well. In chapters 15 and 16, he's talking about Moab, Judah's neighbor to the east, on the eastern side of the, the Dead Sea. Israel has an interesting history with Moab. Moab has its own sordid history. The history of Moab goes back to the, the, the sexual sin between Lot and his firstborn daughter that produces the son, Genesis 19, who is called Moab, and, and his descendants are the Moabites. And the Moabites and the Jews have, for a time, at least cordial relations. We see some of that in the book of Ruth, that there's at least some back and forth and, and acceptance. But as time goes on, conflict escalates over land. Moab becomes more of an enemy of Judah. And all throughout this time, the Moabites are worshiping their own sort of national deity. They are not worshiping the, the God of creation. They have their own God that they worship. And so in chapter 15, Isaiah is warning, God is warning, of a sudden disaster that would fall on Moab. We don't know all of the details. We can presume it has something to do with the Assyrian Empire, but verse 1 lists the two key cities in Moab at that point in history. So the description is that this is, this is striking the whole land. It is some kind of crippling invasion. It is causing grief. It is causing people to flee for refuge. They are running to the temple of their God, as it describes in Isaiah 15. But the point I want you to see is down in verse 5, when you suddenly have this line in the midst of, of them trembling and fearing, verse 5, my heart cries out for Moab. It goes on to describe their suffering and their desolation comes back around again in verse 9 and speaks of the waters of Dibon are full of blood, for I will bring upon Dibon even more. This is, this is God speaking in this passage, because the reference in verse 9 of bringing even further judgment is, is, is clearly the word of God. And so even in verse 5, that statement is God speaking through Isaiah. Similarly, in chapter 16, Verses 9 through 12, and these are verses, again, I would encourage you to look at, but there are statements of grief. I weep with the weeping. I drench you with my tears. No cheers are raised. My inner parts moan. I would submit to you, this is God using human analogies for us 
in order to understand what grief is like. God is, is, is not like a man in that sense of, of sort of the physical kind of nature that he's describing in that grieving, but it is still, there is a compassion, and he is trying to help us to understand his own compassion, even in the course of his judgment. The Lord is not grieving over his judgment of Moab. That's important. In 16.9, when he says, therefore, I weep with the weeping of Jazer. So we've got to pause at that moment and say, therefore, what's causing him to weep? And if we back up, it really goes back as far as verse 6. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride and his insolence in his idle boasting. He is not right. And then he goes on and speaks of Moab being stricken and then comes to and says, therefore, I weep. God's grief was on account of Moab's sin and all of the consequences of that sin. It is the, 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 the power of sin's grip. And all that sin brings and all of the consequences. And and it it would appear from this passage, God uses his judgment to get Moab's attention, but instead the people remain resolutely opposed to God. They continue to be prideful. They continue to be arrogant and insolent. And, And God is actually demonstrating for us that it is not justice without compassion. There is still lamenting for the cost of sin, for the consequences of evil. It's Jesus in Matthew 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. It's Jesus outside the tomb of Lazarus. He's not grieving over the loss of Lazarus because he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He's grieving as he watches his friends grieving because sin and death have invaded and have taken this life. And this is all part of this fallen world. It's all consequences of the fall, sin and death. And so while we honor God for his justice and for perfectly administering his justice, we don't do so without emotion. God's just. It's just the way it is. He's going to repay evil. When we see the leader of a nation using his military for evil purposes, there's, there's nothing wrong with hoping praying that God would somehow remove that leader in some way, that God would work in some way to to stop what's going on and praying for that leader's replacement. But I would submit to you, there should also be a desire for God to bring that one to repentance, for God to somehow break into the life of that person and cause them to see their own sin and the consequences of their sin and bow before the Lord who is God himself. And that's that's the compassion that is here. That God is just, and when his justice falls, it is right for us to grieve the cost of sin. It is right for us to grieve the consequences that have come as a result of evil. It's not God's, God is sovereign in all of this, but it is not God's good design. This is man and his fallenness, and, and we should weep and be compassionate as even God is. That's why Jesus calls us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. When we are a little more prone to think differently about our enemies and those who persecute us. And he says, have compassion, pray for them. We still long for the defeat of evil and the ultimate triumph of the Savior over the souls of rebellious sinners. But let me say this, it is right for us to expect and demand justice for the abuser for the betrayer, for the violent, for the mocker. 
We should expect and demand justice, but that should not keep us from praying that God would do what only God can do in bringing that person to the knowledge of himself in a saving way, causing him to repent and turn. And if that abuser, that betrayer, that unfaithful one, that mocker goes to the grave with no sign of turning to Christ, that should still cause us grief at what sin has done, what the power of sin has accomplished. And we should grieve that. God's justice is right. His compassion is great. The last part that I just want you to see here is his rule is, is steady. One last passage here. We've, we've looked at Isaiah 17 where the, 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 the chaotic sort of nature of man's rule like an ocean, you know, trying to pretend that we're something we're not. We're strong, we're mighty, we're unstoppable. And, and God says, yeah, until I stop you and rebuke you and show you that you're just like little bits of dust floating in the sunlight. In, in, in all of these descriptions of man's evil, from chapter 13 through chapter 23, there are similar pictures, violence, chaos, man desperately trying for power, for accomplishment, for gain, for possessions, for satisfying his own passions, doing it either by use of force, by use of violence, or even in some instances, by trying to rely on his own wisdom and trickery or diplomacy, something that, that, that by his cunning and disguise, maybe he can still achieve what he wants to do. And so in chapter 18, he's talking to the people of Cush. This is modern day um, northwestern Africa, Ethiopia, on up to, to Egypt, largely portions of that area. And it speaks in chapter 18 of Cush sending messengers and ambassadors over the seas to try to bring about diplomacy. Uh, Isaiah 18, verse 2, Cush sends ambassadors by the sea and vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering whose land the, the rivers divide primary means of travel in Cush, or at least a, a fast, broad means of travel, was the Nile River. It flows northwards, the wind pushed southward, so either direction tends to make travel almost as close as you're going to get to a highway at that point in time. And so the picture seems to be of Cush doing everything it can to, to pursue diplomacy. Go, go and, and find the mightiest people you can find and, and get them on our side. Get them to help us. Let, let's work together. And again, this is the period when the Assyrian Empire is continuing to push further and further south. So there's something to this historically that Cush is seeing the writing on the wall and saying, we've, we've got to assemble all of the resources we can. Stop the enemy by whatever means. So you've got this frantic, sort of desperate, again, man-centered kind of, we're not going to bow before the creator God. We, we've got to figure this out, though, how we're going to do this and defend ourselves. So then look at verse 3. God's response here is just fascinating. All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look, when a trumpet is blown, hear. For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling like clear heat and sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. What's going on here? There's, the statement to the nations of the world is, you are, you are desperately trying to build your armies and band together and, and work your diplomacy and do what you got to do in order to be the powerful ones that you are and fend off the Assyrians. And there's this, just this, this madness. But here, let me, let me give you just a little glimpse behind the curtain. And it's this. 
while you are frantically racing around for answers and never even pausing to consider that there is a God of the universe to whom you hold account. He is in heaven, and he is on his throne, and he is ruling, and he is quiet. He's not in a stir about all of these things. And in fact, his omnipresence, his, his presence over what you are experiencing now is like heat when there's sun. Well, uh, when they saw sun in the Middle East, they knew that there was heat that went with it. He is as present as dew is at the time of harvest when there's a warmth that comes in the morning and the dew is, it's just going to be there every morning. There's going to be dew. And what he's saying to them is, you, you, you're trying to do everything you can without God. And here is God, like heat on a sunny day, who is right there, and he is quietly ruling in heaven, if only you will trust him. It is a glorious picture of God's sovereign rule over what appears at our level sometimes to be bedlam on earth. And it is to remember that God sees, God knows. And as we see all throughout these chapters, when God rules, God is just. And when God punishes man's evil, it is right and it is true. And when God says stop, that's as far as it goes because God is sovereign. And that's why Isaiah then in the next couple of verses after verse four can go on and say, God will most surely lop the branches off the tree and he will leave the land. When God acts, the land will be so desolate that the only thing that'll be there are the scavenger birds left to, to pick up on the carcasses. It'll be desolate. There'll be nothing left when God acts. God is not searching for answers. There is no situation room in heaven where God convenes a council to try to figure out, what do we do now? Look at what they've done on earth. How do we respond? The, the picture here is, I will quietly look from my dwelling. I'm watching, and I know, and this will not go one inch further than what I have designed, because God is patiently, quietly ready to do his will and to enact his justice. And if that doesn't comfort you, then finish with verse 7. The end of this section says this, At that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts, from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a, mighty, a nation mighty and conquering whose land the rivers divide, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. Remember the language in verse 2? Go find mighty ones who can fight. You come to the end of of chapter 18, and it just ends in this glorious place. It may not happen right away. Evil may still seem pervasive on the earth, and it, but, but we know this. God's justice will prevail, and there is coming a day when the people from these faraway places will come racing to God and racing into his kingdom. They will come to bring tribute and worship and honor to their creator, there will ultimately be, when our Savior returns, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, and he is returning, he will establish his kingdom, and in that day, he will establish peace. And then these very same nations that, that fought for control and, 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 and thought they could do it all, there will be a remnant coming from one end to the other, and they will be coming to pay tribute to the King of kings. As unsettling as these chapters are, and they should be, chapters 13 through 23, these, these are not easy devotional reading sort of chapters that you go, hmm, I'm ready for Monday because I've read this. I understand that. But they should testify to you of the rule of God over history and the rule of God over the nations and the fact that, that all are ultimately accountable to him and he is quietly on his throne. He's not in a panic. And we can trust him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Father, we come before you professing to believe what your word says. Your justice is right. It is perfect. We thank you for that. We thank you that in a world where justice is so often skewed, so often subjected to man's evil and partiality, that your justice is right and true, administered in perfect righteousness. And so we honor you for that. We thank you that even in your punishing of unrepentant, wicked people, that there is still a display in that of your being just and true to who you are. But Lord, that, that so causes us to pause and recognize how undeserving we are. Were it not for your mercy and turning your anger and rescuing us through putting our sin on your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, we would be amongst those battling and warring and carrying out violence. Lord, thank you for, for rescue. I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody listening to this this morning who is feeling caught in sin, caught in hopelessness, caught in despair, I pray that this morning they would, your spirit would work to show them that it is through Jesus that there is life and hope, that the Son of God came lived a sinless life, died on the cross to bear our sin and the punishment for it in his body, just as we celebrated a few minutes ago in the, the Lord's Supper, we were reminded of Jesus pouring out his blood in a sacrifice that took your wrath and has now by your grace averted it for those who are trusting in you so that we might be your children so that we might be privileged to be among that remnant that would bring tribute to you and praise you for who you are. Help us, Father, to be compassionate. Help us to be a people who love to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to sinners who are lost and desperate and in need of him. Help us to grieve in a way that would honor your justice but recognize the the awful cost of sin and the destruction that it brings. And Lord, help us to rest in your rule. I'm sure there are brothers and sisters here this morning whose circumstances right now are hard, who are facing challenges, who maybe are dealing with sinful people in their lives who are just making life hard. Lord, I pray that the message that we've seen this morning in Isaiah would would encourage them again today that you are ruling, that you are there, you are present like heat on a summer day, and that you are longing to be near to your people and to pour out your comfort and your wisdom. Help us to, to not be like those who are proud and arrogant and who would try to battle these things alone, but be a people who would desperately turn to you and seek your help and your care and your wisdom to respond in ways that would honor you. Lord, thank you for these truths. Thank you for the body of believers here and the opportunity to be able to, to navigate these things through life together and to help one another in applying these truths. Help us to live well in community as people who would bring to mind these realities of your justice, your compassion, your rule. Lord, we give you all of the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.